Good evening, everybody. I'm the one that you don't know on the stage. My name's Jack Thurston, and I present a radio show about cycling on Resonance FM, London's arts radio station. First of all, I just want to welcome Graham to London on behalf of everybody here and to look mum no hands. Graham is a man who needs little introduction in a place like this, but I'm going to do something anyway. For anyone who's here who doesn't know who this man is, Graham was individual pursuit world champion in 1993 and 1995, multiple winner of British time trial championships at multiple distances, twice broken the hour record. Graham is revered not just because of what he's achieved, but because of how he did it, whether that's through dedicated training, constant technical innovation on the bike and with the bike, but not only that, it's the things he's overcome, the adversity, the hard times and the knockdowns and the UCI. And he's remained throughout a much-loved and much-respected man by all cycling fans everywhere, but particularly in our country. So please welcome world champion, record-breaker, innovator, philosopher, poet and fellow cyclist, Graham O'Brien. Well, that's a good eagle trip. Thank you there. Well done. Hi. Well, we're here to talk about the, um, the Obery Way. We'll obviously talk about the training manual that you've just published, that you've just been signing, and, and you'll be around to sign some more if you've just walked in um, and want to buy one afterwards. But let's take the Obery Way in its biggest sense, which is you know, your life on two wheels. Everyone who knows me knows that I'm not a racing cyclist. Neither were you when you were first on a bike. Tell us about what your first entree into the world of cycling was. Well, I'm still not a racing cyclist. I am a cyclist who found bike racing as, firstly, a good way of funding beer on a Friday night. And secondly, I became obsessive about it. And then I really love bike racing. Fundamentally, I'm a cyclist first. I mean that in terms of I don't drive a car, I don't own a car. I have no intention of owning a car. I just cycle about the place everywhere because I believe in that, because I'm a cyclist. So cyclist first and then a racing, racing guy. But if you can remember the teenage Graham, what was it about the bike and what was it about the potential that the bike gave you for, for escape and excitement? Cycling's one of those very few sports. In fact, I don't think there's any other sport. One, it's a sport, a pastime, and it's a form of transport. Like you don't football down at the shops, you know what I mean? <laughs> just like, it's all those things. And also, if you, then you throw in the fact that I like messing with things. I can't leave anything alone without a can opener or, or, or anything. If I see bad design, it really irritates me. So, and I've always, as a kid, my, part of my distraction was messing about with making things out of cardboard and metal and wood, whatever it was lying about and making, just making things. So you can mess about with bikes as well as the whole technicality of it. And you can do it when you want. You don't have to wait as if the guys are playing football or whatever it is. You just go and do your sport when you feel like it. So if you add all those things together, then cycling is a great sport. And let's move on to the club life. You tell that story in, in your um, autobiography and in this book, the, the kind of entree into the not particularly friendly world of cycling clubs. Well, I, I don't know if cycling clubs are like that anymore. Uh, in those days, it was... Uh, We'll give them a good kick in, and what's the people that are left at the end will be good ones. It's like, so there's one in ten, there's a burnout ratio. I, 
let's drop them in the first week. So it was kind of like that. The West Coast of Scotland was anyway. Well, there's a newcomer, right? Let's drop him in the first club ride. And then if it's hard enough, he'll come back. It was like, so it was like that a bit. Uh, and I came back and kept coming back. So, um, What made you come back and keep coming back? I think I liked that, actually, the challenge of it. The challenge of, I'll last longer next week. So I, I found something I could become obsessive about. When did you realise that you were good, that it, it wasn't just being a, you know, a clubman that could be your future in cycling? I think that happened as a process of, one, you're not getting dropped in anymore, and then you're actually taking part in the process of the front end, the sharp end, and you start enjoying that when somebody pokes, you know, the half-wheeling thing. Um, you actually enjoy the process of that and the whole the wearing down process. You enjoy that. Then you, people say, oh, you need to try some bike racing. And that's kind of how it started. And then I won my first open race as a junior, and people handed money to me. I thought, oh, this is good. I'll do more of this every week. What was training and preparation like in, in those days for you, in the, the beginning, before you'd learn everything that you've put into, uh, into this book? Well, it became a bit obsessional, but I was actually very lucky. And uh, although I know a lot of people might, hear, might have been new to the sport in the last five or ten years, um, there's quite a lot of young people here. But in those days, I mean, at 15 years old, I cycled off, oh, I'm going to the north of Scotland, I'll just, I'll just take all these tins, Mum, thanks, bye. Um, in those days you could do that, whereas nowadays it's much more restrictive and you don't go and do 120 miles uh, at 15 and 16 years old and uh, with poly bags over your feet to, to protect you from the snow and you just, people don't do that anymore. Why not? Why not? Because, well, it's just, but the whole politics of it's moved forward, you, don't, you wouldn't take young people out, and even taking young people out, there's a whole, whole politics and, 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 and there's disclosure and everything to do with the modern world of, of uh, everything's got to be, uh, it's PC, isn't it? It's like caught, you've got to cotton wheel the young generation. Yeah, but it's, it's battery children, isn't it? Battery childhood rather than free-range children. It is, but it's an extension of society the way that is. But I was lucky that I had that apprenticeship and, and uh, all the cyclists I hung about with were hardcore cyclists. And it goes, oh, son, don't do that. They would just tell you straight. And if you, were, you weren't coming through properly and, and you're riding your bike unsafely, they would say, son, don't do that. This is how you do it. So you learn a lot from I'd an apprenticeship of real cycling that I was very lucky to get. And in those days, there wasn't a lot of young people coming in. Well, there was more young people that then. They went through a death of young people for a while. And now cycling's really getting popular. But the process now from my own club is a lot of people have come in, they're really, really interested in cycling as a sport, as a pastime, and sportive. They don't, they're 40-something, and they think, oh, I better start doing some exercise or I'm going to die of a heart attack. So they take up cycling, realise it's a great sport, want to do more of it, but they don't have that background of knowledge. And, and I find it awkward telling somebody my age, saying, oh, listen, mate, don't do that. You would do it to a 15-year-old. You see, so people don't get that learning process and they're hanging about with each other. They don't have that background of, uh, for example, using the smallest chain ring and the smallest cog at the back. A lot of people don't even know you shouldn't do that. So that's just little things like that that, that people do. You see around about you that you've been pulled up for right away when you joined a cycling club in the past. Let's move on to the, the bit of your life that was very much in the public eye. You had this great adversary in Chris Boardman going for these world records and I grew up obviously watching sport in the, on the TV in the 80s and it was Seb Cohen, Steve Ovette and there was a certain amount of 
the ideology behind that rivalry that I think transferred onto your contest. And I know who was who. Um. Yeah, and I'm, I'm Steve Ovid, obviously. Um. Were you conscious of the amount of stuff that we, people were projecting onto you as a sportsman, and particularly that rivalry um, with, with Chris Bourbon at the time? What was it like on the inside of, of, that, of that life? Well, first I've got to say, it was actually it was very lucky that both of our careers collided. Because to be, if we're both at that level at different times, that'd be really, really sad. And the fact is, we're both. When 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 I was riding against Chris, it was you had to put that extra percentage into the, at the edge of what you could humanly achieve. Otherwise, you're getting beaten. You might get beaten anyway, but you've got to go to that very edge. Whereas other times, you think, well, okay, you know, not whistle Dixie, but you think, well, I've come two minutes up at the turn, I'll just kind of go hard on the way back, and it's fine. Whereas Chris is there's a different thing. But the rivalry itself. Uh, that rivalry, I, I was actually very insular uh, and focused on what I was doing to not actually see the whole public, the whole public feeling. There, there wasn't any of this forums and people and cafes. It wasn't. It was going to races uh, and then get scurrying home and trying to recover as best you could, uh, and then train, and then go to the next race and obsessively deal with your next training ride. So it was. You were very insular in that that whole field of it. But there's this sort of, you know, I don't know, it must be a, a, a certain, to a certain extent a myth of, um, you know, Boardman with all the backing and all this technical stuff and Mike Burrows on his side and then there's you, you know, sawing things up in your kitchen. That's absolutely correct, yes. That's exactly, that's exactly how it went down. But at the end of the day, especially the hour record, there's only three things in the hour record. There's the black line and there's you and... Uh, there's an hour and that's it, uh, everything else is just noise whistling around your ears of people but actually that's all there is, when you get to that start line you started, it doesn't matter how much support you've had up to that point, that's all there is and obviously the fourth factor is how much do you actually want it to endure it that's it. Where was your motivation coming from at that time? Fear, fear of failure and actually to be honest I, I actually needed to do their record I, Chris really, really wanted it, but I needed it in terms of my justification as a human being depended on that. That's why I got up the next day and I, I had to do that because I couldn't exist as a human being without doing that. Do you think that's common, that the desire to win is not as powerful as the fear of losing? I hope not. I think it's very healthy. Look at these very top people. I mean, I think even Mark Cavendish talked in those terms that it's not, he's, he's, he's more motivated by the possibility that he won't cross the line first than that, than that he will. I mean, it's difficult to separate them out, but you, this, this sort is, of this anger yeah, and this yeah. fear. This is actually going to sound quite, um, well, it's quite a statement to make, but I would say the majority of people who gravitate to the top of sport have got some nuclear power source in them psychologically. Um, the way I put it is, Happy, contented people read the Sunday newspaper. Um, other people go up at six o'clock in the morning and, and, and gasp their way for 50 miles up and down a Joe Carriageway to try and shave a few seconds off their personal best. There's got to be a driving force. And the more that driving force is, the higher up you get in that sport. So sport doesn't cause people to be depressed. The very thing that makes people strong is also the thing that can make them very vulnerable. Because if you're driven, 
you've got the personality, you've got whatever it is is driving you on, is it also the very thing that can also affect you psychologically with depression or in once uh, the post-winning era is over, the anticlimactic uh, post-winning situation kicks in, then you've got to deal with that, the highs and lows. And, and there's very few people who will, in, I guess in this room, you have to deal regularly with that post-winning uh, come down. I mean, what's in it for the person who's not being paid to do it, the person who's not winning all the time? What's, what's in it in the, the battle for 43rd place in the cyclocross? You know what? It's a word that I've used in that book. Um, I've read the ghost wrote in that book about... No, I'm only joking. <laughs> I want my money back. No. Um, but I wrote about passion. You don't see passion written very often in regard to sport, but you know what? That's almost one of the most important things. Now, halfway through my career, I was getting paid good money to line up, for example, to do a criterium in Belgium. Now, half you folk would give your right arm to line up like a criterium in Belgium with the cameras going in the crowds and everything, wouldn't you? Uh, and I'm going, oh, I can't face this race today. Um, and I thought, you've got to do something about that. And I started hanging about people like you. Went, I started going to bike events, and I would see people taking the bike out of a car on a Sunday morning straight from night shift, and they've paid for that bike, and they've and they've paid for entry, and they're going to be 30 seconds in that race, and they do it because they're passionate about it. And I thought, right, I need to get that passion back. And you did? Oh, I did. Um, but it was hanging about with ordinary people again. And that's that you do it because you're passionate about it, not because of what you're going to win or anything else. Well, let's get on to the, the method, the method of inquisition and improvement that you document in the, in the book. You emphasise marginal gains in the book, and that's something that's the sort of... Th- Dave Brailsford, who's head of British Cycling and uh, Sky Team director, he's popularised that you know, in the last few years. But we, was that the approach that you were taking in the 90s, this marginal gains? I think when you're talking about obsessive behaviour, then marginal, absolute tiniest marginal gain. I couldn't personally envisage going to a start line knowing that I could have done even one millionth of an improvement on something uh, psychologically. So that was at the level of obsessive behaviour. I would draw a tiny, tiny hole in something. It was going to be like a tenth of a gram lighter or like that level of obsessive behaviour. But I think there's also a level of convergent evolution going on. Because kind of what went on in the 90s, then subsequently through a lot of research and and the scientific side of it, um, I've kind of come the same thing through uh, experience, intuition, and also going to first principles. So other people have gone to first principles and said, okay, let's rewind what we know already um, to find out what we should be doing. Because the past can sometimes just carry momentum on to the future and then you do, you're in a comfort zone and you don't change. So that's what I did. I thought, let's forget, um, forget everything. Because it's quite easy to understand what the importance of marginal gains is. Like you've got all these little bits that add up to a lot. You look after the pennies and the pounds and look after themselves approach. But the innovation part is more tricky to get your head around, how do you make that decision to fundamentally change your position on the bike or fundamentally change the way in which you're doing your training sessions? Is it trial and error? No. No, it's not. To tell you the truth, Old Faithful came about as a process the year before that. I'd actually gone out on my bike and I thought, hold on, I've actually got to go on this bike and pretend I don't know anything. All I know is how to balance a bike. But I'm going to use the knowledge that I've got to judge it afterwards or while I'm riding it, but I don't know anything. Because I thought, my knowledge is actually constraining me and blinding me for learning more. So I thought, right, on this bike, 
And within two minutes, I thought, these pedals are too wide apart. How could I have not noticed this in like 20 years? Because I'd opened my mind to it. I'd been blinded to it. And uh, then I thought, oh, this, this bar across the top is in the way as well. It's like, well, that's got to go. So the whole bike design was, was based around, that's not a good bike design. Unless you're doing a narrow, narrow bracket, that bike design is a bad bike design. The diamond-shaped bike is obviously a better design. It's lasted through the ages, uh, from first principles. I, in fact, you can actually try this at home. When you go back to your caravan or your chateau, or wherever you live, <laughs> pretend it's the first time, right? Pretend you've, it's a mate's flat and you've just borrowed it and you've just walked in there, and you go, oh, hold on, that picture's bogging. <laughs> or how long's that tramping line there, or whatever it is. See you at where you live for the first time with fresh eyes, and that's the principle of how it works. And you can do this with absolutely everything. What you know constrains what you can know. But once you're aware of that, then you can take action about it. How much is the UCI a barrier to useful innovation in cycle sport? Well, you might be shocked to hear me say that UCI were my best friends in terms of innovation. Because I was actually in a comfort zone. After getting that tuck position, ski position, then I got banned. It seemed rough at the time. But the fact I couldn't do it anymore shook me violently out of a comfort zone, which I didn't even realise I was in. I was skating along, not innovating anymore. Then I had to, and then the Superman position came out of that, and it wouldn't have done had it not been shaken out of a comfort zone. But what about in bicycle technology? Ought, ought we to be seeing uh, disc brakes in the Tour de France? Well, I don't know what to say about it. I mean, they are paid to govern the sport. So, I mean, ultimately... I've no objection to that. I mean, it is a sport. I mean, cycling, as we know it, bikes aren't the most efficient as they can be. Obviously, you would have a fairing in the front of it. I, I mean, having a, a small fairing in the front of any bike, you could put a fairing in the front of a mountain bike, and it's going to be more efficient than a 10,000-pound road bike. But you don't see fairings in front of a, a mountain bike. So bikes aren't as efficient as they could be because people have just imitated, and bike shops have imitated what's actually been restricted by the, the UCI. So uh, that restriction, it's like any sport, like tennis or anything, you've got a restriction the size of rackets or anything, it's just restric restricted to the sport. If it wasn't restricted, if there was no rules, then you would go straight to fared bikes and uh, as recumbent as it can be. And obviously, more than anything else, uh, they would then develop uh, they would develop regenerative, uh, bra re sorry, regenerative braking easy for me to say. Um, yeah, regenerative, I believe that, re I've got to say it again, regenerative braking would have been developed already if it was going to be allowed on racing bikes. And that's a big thing that's going to change the streets, because if you can start braking down at lights and you get that energy back again, think of it. It's, it's not even, it's not even an, and charge it up overnight, it's like you just get that energy, but your, your brake stores that energy, it's like a spring that you go again, like you're down a hill put your brakes on, that energy gets stored. That's the next big thing that has to be worked on, but it won't happen while well, you can't have them on race bikes because then the market won't develop it. Interesting. Well, one thing you can do, obviously, is prepare your body, even if you can't put the regenerative braking system on your bike. Let's talk about your approach to training and the concept of training itself. I think people think, well, training is just going out and not being in a competition and sort of riding. Some people think, a lot of people think that, but 
And then there's a lot of stuff about pyramids and intervals, and you don't buy into either of those things, like the, you know, the club run and then all this complicated stuff. You've got a very straightforward approach to, to training. Well, it seems that way. But actually it's not. Most of my training principles, or well, all of them, I think all of my training principles are based on hard science. The fact that I've come to it from a field factor. I've used the world's most complicated computer to analyze my training, which is my human mind. Well, everybody's human mind. Um, which is dialed in the real time to how you feel. So, I mean, how often does it happen? You go, oh, I feel a bit rough today. Oh, it's in my mind. Uh, I'll just carry on. And then you train. And then four days later, you start sneezing. And you go, oh, I've got a cold. Now, if you'd listen to your body, oh, I feel rough today. I might just tap back. I might, I might be coming down with something. Then you wouldn't, might, your body might have fought off that cold. How often it's happened to almost all of us? And you've ignored it because... Uh, computer says you've got to do this today. So I think in the book there are, there are these two kinds of rides that you go into in some detail. There's the turbo stuff and then there's the out on the road. Do you want to just go through those in sequence? The what, turbo the, thing. The turbo, beware, if you have a turbo trainer, you're going to be going home and pulling out the screwdriver and doing all kinds of unspeakable things to it tonight. But um, that's the health warning. There may be something, in, uh, a, a bike in the market, a turbo trainer on the market, which... Uh, has all those qualities that is guaranteed to be accurate to half or a quarter of 1%. Uh, as I explained in the book, if I'm pushing myself to the edge of the limit, that flow's coming up and down, it's really, really, really a really good effort. Now, I don't do pain anymore. I do effort because that's positive. And then you can start adding swear words or halfway up the hill and go, that's a really good effort. <laughs> Whereas, no, seriously, if you go, oh, oh, I'm stuffed, then you are stuffed. You're just going to go down the gears. So you go, oh, that's a good effort. That's a really good effort. This is really painful. It really, could be painful, but no, there's a really, really, really good effort. Then you keep going. So you've always got to think use positivity. But if there was a, a machine in the market accurate to quarter percent, if you push yourself that hard, you're going for a half percent or a one percent gain that week. One percent. You want to know that's not the machine. You want to know you have improved. That is a PB. Like that's a turbo PB. Like a turbo. Seriously, a turbo PB means more to me than a PB in a local ten course or a, or a, a national record, just about. Because if that machine is accurate, that's real, and that's how fast. That's totally related to how fast I'm going to go in a world championship or whatever it is else. So that is that. It's got to be. So it's got got to be real. You've got to know that's real. You also say that. If you're in training for a certain event, the best way to be in training for that event is to do the effort that's required for that event. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I analysed other sports. I mean, if cross-training was that good, triathletes would win the swimming, the cycling, and the running championships. But they don't. So you can see that adding more sports in uh, diverse uh, exercise activities, uh, it's less good than doing a more specific. Doing a more spe if you do just cycling, you're going to be better than a triathlete who's doing those other sports. So if you extrapolate down the line, um, if you go, if I'm just doing cycling at all distances, you'll be good at doing generally all distances. But as somebody who specialises in doing just 10 mile time trials, it's going to be better than you doing general cycling. So you can take that down to the point of, uh, what do you want to win? And are you willing just to train for that? 
that's the bottom line. So it's like specificity. So the turbo session is about measuring your improvement and focusing the duration on something that's relevant to the event that you're focused on. Absolutely. Right? Now, how I, I see the turbo training and how it fits in is that whatever you can do for 20 minutes and a half an hour aerobically in terms of actually your, your, your lung power, your heart and lung power, how much energy can you actually uh, generate uh, for that time? Then you're going to be able to do, what, 10% less or whatever. I don't know what the figures are, but you're going to do what, X amount less for an hour or even bigger X amount less for two hours or X amount less for four hours. So the end, at the end line of what you could do in a long ride is, is uh, closely related to what you can do for half an hour in terms of, in terms of uh, energy. So it's not all about being on the turbo trainer with a fan in front of you in the garage. There's, you do actually want to get out onto the road. You want to get out on the road, but the thing is, I mean, I hate turbo trainers. I, so I associate it with really, really four letters, four expletives and that effort. Um, but I have to do that. I'm, I'm training for this uh, world land speed record. Uh, it's going to be later on in the year, so I'll do it. I'll really well get on that turbo trainer properly on like five months before it. And so for your road rides, the, what you describe as the glycogen rides, what's going on there? What's useful about that? The useful thing about that is that, uh, how do I explain it in short and brief? Um, your body stores glycogen. As an aerobic athlete, we burn glycogen, which is a form of starch. Very, very, very long chain, like sugar molecules joined together, 100 or 200 at a time. Glycogen. And your body breaks that down into smaller parts, and it uses it as its fuel for the sugar for your bloodstream. Uh, and your body can ride for two or three hours in this with no food. And but that whole glycogen system is like it needs to be trained because see a trained cyclist, let's say an endurance athlete, like a Tour de France rider, seventy percent of that muscle mass won't be muscle fibers. There's only thirty percent of it's muscle fibers. The other seventy percent is the feeder stuff, is the capillaries, it's, it's the glycogen storage and the, and, and the whole system that runs that glycogen. So you, if you train that 70%, then uh, the, the best way to do that is, is, is totally deplete it. It's almost like it's discharging your phone battery. I think I've used that analogy. Discharge your phone battery and then totally recharge it. If you just trickle, trickle out and then trickle top it up again, your battery becomes inefficient. It only, only, you only use that level you're using. So let's use it or lose it. It's basic. Uh, basic evolution. So you've got to train that system to its absolute maximum, totally discharge it, which is, a, a, is quite a difficult process in terms of you will feel totally drained at the end of this, and then totally uh, recharge. And the recharge is more important, and that's the rest and recovery, which most cyclists find harder than doing a hard bike ride. Because they want to get back on the bike. But it was also lack of confidence. I've seen bike riders in the past, top-level bike riders, the day before, or the evening before a big ride, they're going out giving it large, because I just want to know it's the engines will go okay. It's like, you're going to be tired for tomorrow, but you don't know, no, I need to know that. I, so there's a lack of confidence that um, if you're taping down for four days, which you really should do, and just really, really, you're totally and utterly fresh for your event, then that takes confidence that you will be okay on the day. So it takes confidence to not train. 
you have to understand the physiology of why you're doing it to be totally believing, not training. I'm actually recovering today. So before your recovery begins, so you come back from this glycogen ride where you've entirely depleted your stores of energy and you find on the table your mashed up sardines in the tomato sauce with the side of broccoli on the toast, on the wholemeal toast, pre-prepared because you should be so spent that you can't actually open the tin of sardines and spread it all out and you've just got to eat this thing. Well, it's the mushing factor. It's just, <laughs> I can't do it. It's too much. But you don't have any truck with all the supposedly scientifically formulated expensive foods and drinks and things like that. You know, you talk about sardines on toast, um, marzipan for the hamster-style cheek you know, during the, during the race. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, it's quite encouraging that, that you're eschewing these, uh, in this snake oil of these modern confections. Well, I wouldn't say I'm eschewing it, but from a personal point of view, um, we've evolved to eat real food. And also, I was very lucky at this obsessional behaviour is switched between cycling and reading thick books about biology and physiology and, uh, well, microbiology, cellular biology. But in the process, I picked up a whole lot of things about human uh, physiology. And the thing about eating food is the first process of digestion is actually chewing the food releases enzymes, which is the first process of digestion, which then goes to your stomach uh, and a thing called a bolus, which then stimulates the process of digestion. Now, a lot of people take energy drinks and then they feel, a lot of people told me they feel nauseous. That's because the first stage of digestion has been uh, circumvented. And also, if you look at the amount of energy, uh, amount of energy drinks you actually need to get through an event, it's something like forty-two bottles. I'll calculate it. It's something like forty-two bottles of uh, six percent sugar of this that you'd have to drink, compared to this mouthfuls of, of, of stuff, real food. So the recommended real foods are, apart from the marzipan. Well, a lot of people don't like marzipan. This has come to light, apparently. Um, <laughs> how can you not like marzipan? I shall eat marzipan. I told you. <laughs> you will eat marzipan. Um, but whatever works for you is a food source. And the thing is, if you get your energy bars and you like them, have them. But I tend to find that the crumbs, and if you're, somebody, if you're in the race where uh, somebody's attacks and you've got some real heavy breathing on, then oh, I tend to breathe in crumbs and kind of choke on it. And, it, it, and it's, like, it's like, ah, you've got to spit half of it out. Whereas marzipan, you go, oh, it's setting the side of your mouth, you just breathe through it, you never choke on it, there's no crumbs coming off of it. In the practical, in, in the practical world, then, uh, in, in the real world where uh, you're trying to breathe and, and, and it's like, just bite a marzipan. Well, let's get, let's get on to the breathing before I open up to some, like breathing, yeah. to some questions. Oh, this is a bit of audience participation here. Mm -hmm. In this book, there is the Graham Obrey three-step breathing method and we're going to try and Graham's going to start you out on that so that on your ride back home tonight mm -hmm. this is what you're going to be thinking about and breathing because it's quite hard to relearn something that we've been doing since the first moment we were alive it's it? didn't say since the midwife slapped your bum that you're just off and running aren't you you don't think about it anymore um yeah very animalistic it was a uh, well, I didn't even realise it until about four years ago, uh, which actually, that, that breathing technique was what actually made me think about uh, coming back to some sort of fitness. Well, I'd been racing with Jason, and I thought, oh, I'm going not bad. 
because I felt really old at 40 or something. Oh, I'm really old, I'm 40. And I got to 42 and I was racing Jason. I thought, I'm going all right from my age. I'm fact, I'm going all right altogether. And then I discovered this, well, I formulated this breathing technique. And then I thought, oh, that feels good. And a friend of mine in secret, I gave it away to a friend who tried it as turbo trainer with the measured output. I thought, Graham, that's amazing. So I thought, right, somebody else says it's good. I feel good for it. And a couple of other people tried it. And I thought, right, I've got to try and come back for this hour record and test out for it because of the breathing technique. I thought, I can't not do this because I'll regret it if I don't. I looked at the breathing technique and I thought that we have already. That no matter how good it is, it's breathing in and out. Your lungs are basically bellows with one route in, one route out. And it's, there is a complicated science behind it. I was reading the whole thing about gas exchange and, and, and the gases and carbon dioxide and the oxygen content in your lungs. And I'm thinking, okay, it was kind of like a wee bit like the, the, um, the Superman position. I think, okay, what are, the, what are the regulations? What's the maximum of possibility with what you have? So I thought, right, oh, what you have is a bellows. You can't change that. You can't have surgery to change it or anything like that. It's, it is what it is. So how can you maximize uh, the amount of oxygen a conversion that you can have in that bell system. So I started looking at it in terms of the oxygen content. It was based on the fact that your lung is more efficient when it's more inflated than less inflated because there's more surface area available and more air and gas molecules. You also need to get rid of the bad air. So I realized that the most important thing about breathing is actually breathing out because they We've evolved. If you see a drowning, a drowning person, they're going, ah, ah, ah. The instinct is to breathe in. Even though they've got a full lung full of air, they're trying to breathe more air into a full lung. So the instinct is to breathe in. But I thought, actually, in scientific terms, the most important thing is getting the bad air out and getting clean air in. But if you did that in every breath, a big, huge breath, then it's, not, it's just not doable. And, uh, and most of it, from, from the second half of deflation, your lung's going to be not working efficiently at all. So to do that in every breath is a cost of efficiency and it's just, it's not efficient. So I thought the only way of actually solving this is actually going to a, a breathing system where you're not just breathing rhythmically in and out. You have to take, you have to get rid of all the bad air, breathe a whole lot of good air bite into a, a, a relatively, well your lungs, not like actually bursting your lung to like grab that air in, but it's a, it's a full lung full. And then they breathe, a wee half breath out and then a wee like quarter breath out so you're holding the lung more or less like that full of this good air and then get rid of that bad air again so what you've got is a maximum time of inflation with the maximum amount of good air to absorb that oxygen and then get the bad air back out again and that was the three phase pattern so do you think you can talk can we uh, it's everyone up for having a go at this we can have a go at this all right like, let's stand up because you can't you need to sign a disclaimer yeah all right so right. what you do is this Graham will do it, and then we'll do it after with him telling us what, he's, what we should be doing. All right? Right, I'll, so talk I'll talk and breathe. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you could do that. Right. Come on, world record right. holder. Breathe out. Breathe out. Let it go. <sighs> then breathe out. That's your full lung full. Then breathe like half or a third of it out. Just <sighs> then back in. Then it's a wee small one. <sighs> and then all that, you're back out again. <sighs> so it's big breath. Get the old bad ear out. <laughs> but most of it out. Bigger out than you normally would, and a good breath in. A wee half, can a half breath out, and then a wee mini breath, and then the whole body back out again. So you're getting the most amount of good air for the most amount of time. And where's the tongue in this uh, operation? It depends on the weather. <laughs> <laughs> if, 
if it's really cold, I tend to put my tongue in the top of my mouth like that. So you, you draw the air under your tongue because heated air. So this is like the tongue being a radiator to warm up the air radiator, as it comes in, like a sort one, of jet engine. Is that what it's one, if, if that air's coming in cold, if the air's coming in cold, in this country, let's face it, it's normally, the air's normally cold in your body temperature. If that air's coming in cold, you want to give some of your body heat to that air and some of your moisture. So if you draw under your tongue, you're adding both moisture and warmth to that air, which makes it more efficient to uptake the oxygen. And, I, and also it helps cool your body down. Oh, what, like, a, like a lizard that's sort of, yeah, you know, like, a crocodile yeah. or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, All right, well, let's have a go. Let's have a go at the breathing. You right. put, put your tongue where it feels comfortable, <laughs> but let's do that breathing thing. So it's a one big breath in, then fully out, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. to yeah. empty all the... Breathe out, then breathe it all back in, and then half And out, then half out, and then a quarter out, and then we're back to the beginning again. Yes, All right. All right. Let's have a go. All right. right. Everyone ready to breathe in? Okay. Breathe in. Right. All right. Proper in. Half out. Then in. Then rebe out. Rebe in. And then all out again. Does anybody feel a bit floaty? It's like yeah. too, much, too much. Too much air in. Natural highs. So you're never going to again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's just briefly talk about what the future holds with this human-powered vehicle record. What's the latest with that? Is this a serious attempt at this setting a new record? Is, and is this a serious attempt at 100, 100 miles an hour? It's a serious attempt. I know I've made promises in the past, and they, like I was testing for the hour record, which really was a serious test. But uh, the drawback with that hour record was... I realised after about three minutes, this really is a test of how strong your arms are to hold yourself up on the bankings. Bike ran great in the road, but on the bankings, like, oh, my arms is burning. I like, got further, further, further up into the airstream, getting slower and slower. And I thought, you know what? It was 250 quid. Was that 250 quid, check? 250 quid to rent the track for an hour? 250 quid for an hour. Now, you need to spend weeks training around there for the, the riding. Because I rode in the road for ages. I was going well. And you know what, as soon as I hit the track, my arms was went up for it. So you need to ride on the track. And at 250 quid an hour, I think, you know what? And, and the guy that holds it used Moscow track, which is 333, so there's less centrifugal force. And the whole logistics that go into Moscow, and I thought, you know what? It's out of my system. But what I'm going for now, totally going for, is land speed record. Because, one, there's no regulations. Well, there is. It's got to be human-powered and no stored energy. And knock yourself out and design innovation and you want to do great i'm up for that and then uh, and basically the it's 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 a flat road uh no wind assist or very little wind assistance i think it's a wind speed thing or something but it's, it's all measured there's a world championships in september in battle mountain in nevada in uh, in the states and there's a, they, 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 the, the officials are there, the timing strips there, the roads there, closed. It's all ready. We've got, got to be ready to step up there with a bike. Uh, the bike design, I'm keeping the bike design close to my chest because I don't want to give anything away. Is it your design wholly or have you got to a team? Totally my design. Teams will possibly help with small components and things. Me and my boys basically building this bike. Um, uh, might it help with the carbon and, and the Kevlar? Because you need an element of Kevlar in it because if you do fall off... Uh, I've worked with carbon in the past, and actually, it's it's 
if you actually try to sandpaper carbon fiber, you realize it's actually softer than, than balsa wood. Seriously, a carbon would just turn to dust in the first impact of the road. So you need Kevlar in there, which complicates it. Because doing carbon itself isn't actually that complicated. It's actually quite simple. I've made helmets and things. Um, it's, quite, it's not that difficult a process. But the Kevlar thing in it makes it slightly more difficult and, and complicated. So they might get people in to help with that, but not necessarily. And uh, we're going to build this bike and, and uh, just go with what I've got. But it's going to be pretty low to the ground. Oh, it is. No flag. Uh, no flag. No, no, no flag. Actually, I've, I've been thinking of this for 15 years. I, I don't know if that, that, and many people here are old enough to remember uh, a program, even remember a program called Tomorrow's World. But I was, I was featured in that Tomorrow's World thing involving a team uh, with a recumbent thing, which uh, I subsequently didn't have any more part in it. I, well, I lost a bit of skin from, my, from quite a, a, a fleshy part of my body. And I thought, no, kind of stability issues. And I, I thought, why well, do my own uh, very strong ideas of how this design should be? I, and then subsequently, I, Jason Queeley rode that machine at Battle Mountain I, in 2000 and in the early 2000s I, in good form. And, oh, God, it was like 16 or 18 miles an hour short of the record. Uh, and there was a lady ride, no disrespect to ladies, but Jason was a big, powerful guy. Uh, and the lady went faster than he did. So, no, no, but, but, but the point I'm making is that the actual bike and the design of the bike and the function of the bike is 70% is of this record. And then the physicality, the machine will be, the engine will be where it is. I'm going to get my turbo chain and, 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 and squeeze every last bit out. But the engine will be where it is, and the bike will be to this uh, obs obsessional way that I want it. I, to the design that I've got in my head, I've been working on for all that time, and I'm going to step up, and what I've got is what I've got. 